listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. It's going to be a big day. We have uh, it's a very exciting show today because uh, Dr. Jen is in the studio. Good morning. Well, it's just always exciting to be here, don't you reckon? Yeah, but we have welcomed back Yay! one of our good friends, team members, producers. I say that in the uh, child sense. <laughs> Dr. Diani, welcome back. Uh, it is so good to be back. I was, you know, driving here. I was excited the whole way. But you will have to probably, you know, take it easy on me just in case I've forgotten anything in the last uh, nine months or so. Where's your kid? Oh, she's at home. Oh, she's uh, yeah. in good hands. You, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you had that look like who? <laughs> what, what child are you talking about? Yeah. You've been paroled. You can imagine what I was dreaming last night, you know, just horrible stories about leaving her somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make it through. I Kids are pretty resilient. Yeah, I'm sure she'll are. be okay. Well, it's good to have you back. Um, it's been a while. It's been, what, six yeah. months? Yeah, good nine months. months. Nine well, months. She, she's now eight months old. Wow. I? Yeah, so, yeah, it's been it's been a while. So today's the test day. We have to treat her well, folks. So um, <laughs> yeah. I've already made a cup of tea. That's not going to be the norm, by the way. <laughs> That's not happening every Where's week. Where's my cup of tea, mate? Uh, sorry? Where's my cup of tea? Well, I was out there in the kitchen with your husband. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what happened to your cup of tea. I suspect he drank it. Hmm, great. Mm. I can see, yeah, uh, just, you know, what a prized member of this team I am. Yeah, he's waving at me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, as he sips it. Uh, Dr. Downey, why don't we start with you? Do you remember at the start of the show, we do news? We do news, yes. And, yeah, and so I ferreted out a piece of news. This is a study that was published this week in the journal Science and it was looking at mutations that cause skin cancer. But mm-hmm. the difference with this paper was that it was looking for these mutations in perfectly healthy tissue and the okay. alarming thing is that they found heaps of them. So the study was looking at uh, eyelids of four people. So uh, they, they used this like little wedge-shaped um, segment of eyelid that's cut out in cosmetic surgery Right. Like when you have a little eyelid nip and tuck. And, do people uh, do that? Yeah, actually, I've never heard that. Do people do that? <laughs> they, they do. It's a procedure called blepharoplasty. And, uh, yeah, it cuts a little wedge shape of eyelid out. Anyway, clearly, Shane, we don't care enough about how our eyelids look. How we look in general. Well, I guess it can be for, <clears throat> you know, correcting defects and stuff like that. But anyway, boon for the researchers, they got four um, pieces of eyelid from, from volunteers, four people. And from these eyelid pieces, they, they basically sectioned them up into all these tiny little biopsies and sequenced to see whether they could find a number of cancer-causing genes, hmm. 74 genes that have been implicated in skin or other cancers. And they found them all over the place. Uh, they found 3,760 different mutations in patches of skin. Um, some of the patches were as small as, you know, 0.01 square millimetre. Mm-hmm. Some were larger, uh, several square millimetres. Um, so, you know, when you've got like a mutation that happens in, a, in an epidermis cell, you, you can kind of think of skin or you can think of cancer even as a little microcosm where some cells will grow and multiply if they've got the right genetic components to right. make them competitive compared right, right, to their right. yeah, neighbours. Yeah. And, yep. you know, when you have a tumour, for instance, then then that's like, mm. you know, this... Super competitive. This, like, little evolutionary yeah. bomb of, you know, mm. cells that have been able to outcompete their, their neighbours. Yep. And um, so they even found that, like, there were 
like if you look for genes that were working in this selective way, like where they were effectively able to outcompete their their neighbouring cells, they found that a quarter of the tissue contained these so-called driver mutations. And and so the scary thing is this is in perfectly healthy healthy tissue. These were um, four people aged between 55 and 73. So they're, you know, they've had a bit of sun exposure over their life. Yep. Um, But you know, effectively their, their eyelids are still perfectly healthy tissue. And these driver mutations were originally thought to be very rare because you would think, you know, mm. it's a chance occurrence that UV penetrates into the yep. cell, causes damage, and then that cell goes on to, you know, grow and multiply and, right. and eventually become cancer. But yeah, it looks like, uh, looks like we might actually be well, covered in these mutations. And so it begs the question, what then causes cancer? Well, you need obviously a, you know, like multiple mutations in a cell line to cause cancer Mm, rather than mm. just having one of these mutations. It's not just one that happens, but multiple mutations upon mutations will eventually cause cancerous tissue. Um, And it's also a question of, you know, if we do detect a mutation, do we clinically treat it or will we effectively be be wiping out a lot of healthy tissue as well? Yeah, for no apparent reason. That's right, yeah. So I wonder if other skin is going to found to be the same as eyelids because eyelids are interesting in terms of sun exposure and sun damage because, in fact, when your eyes are open, which they are most of the time, your eyelids aren't getting a lot of sun on them. Mm. So, you know, I wonder about other parts of the body that are more likely to be exposed. That's right, and not not even just... Uh, skin tissue, but you sort of think, you know, are we, as we age, you know, is all of our tissue kind of this patchwork of, you know, tissue that's all got, you know, a small mutational load? Like we do know that, you know, Mm. we get mutations throughout our lifetime, but I guess it was thought that, you know, the ones that were detrimental and that would lead to cancer were relatively rare, but it might be, in fact, that, you know, we've got, you know, these precancerous cells all through us. We just don't live long enough to gain enough of, you know, enough of them for it to be a problem. So, yeah, it was Mm -hmm. quite an interesting study. Well, we're filled with mutations. Hey, uh, before I forget, uh, Hello Island. Yes, Very indeed. Proud of the Hello, Ireland. How yeah. good is that? Look, I, my prediction is that in Australia by the 21st century, we'll have... Hang on. <laughs> yeah. Something wrong Don't with that. Don't you statement. mean the 23rd century? <clears throat> I often have this conversation with my, my dad because my dad's a celebrant and a celebrant who would be more than willing to marry gay men, gay yeah. women, anything in between. He's yeah. like, you know, whatever. I don't care if, you know, the usual arguments. The usual arguments. And so I've sort of been thinking, you know, he'll be overrun because not all of them are willing to do that. Mm. Um, but I keep saying, you know, you, you need this to happen here for, well, A, for personal reasons, and B, because it's the right bloody thing the to right do. Thing to do. So look, I, it, Hopefully it's the start of a cascade. Yeah, and then we exactly. Hope. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, sorry, I just had to mention that. because No, I, no, was, I um, it's, Although, you know, it's, it's now, I think I heard 20 countries. Mm. Yeah, it's getting you, there. You sort of think, you know, come on, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Ozzy. Yeah. Uh, something tells me we'll so be... So much I could say. Yes. Something tells me we will be close to last, but... I'm guessing um, we're going to be waiting for quite a while. But, I guess um, it's also we're probably preaching to the converted. Yeah. And, you know, mm. it's it's the uh, politicians that need to get their act together in, in making yeah. a change, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and the Pope. I mean, the Pope could, you know, 
Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> have we ever Jen, talked about the Pope on Einstein? I have. Before, oh, no, have well, not this Pope, but previous Popes have had a bit of a shellacking from me over various things. Um, you know, I'm always ready to give them a bit of a yeah. hint if they deserve it. Dr. Jen. All right, I want to talk to you about a, a massive problem that is currently facing biomedical scientists around the world, and that is that there's just too many of them and they're doing too much good research. <laughs> so the problem is that basically... You're saying we need a cull. Well, no, but the, the, the issue is that every year there's one million new papers coming out, so that means a new, you know, peer-review, high-quality biomedical research paper is coming out every 30 seconds, wow. and the output has doubled over the last 12 years. And what that means is it's just completely impossible for any scientist to keep up with what's mm. coming out. Information glut. Yeah, total information glut. And the issue is that, that there could be these real, you know, game-changing kind of connections out there that we are not able to make because nobody can read enough of the literature and nobody can kind of step back and make, you know, connections yep. between, oh, you found that, you found that, you found that. Hang on, I wonder if this means this. And so I want to tell you about a new twist on citizen science. Now, I think most people have probably heard of citizen science. That's where scientists get the help of lay people to do things. So in my field, that might mean people going out and counting birds or, you know, doing animal surveys. Shane, for you, it's people, you know, they got a, they had a big project where people were classifying galaxy images from the Hubble um, yeah, telescope because, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. there were just so many images and, and people can be trained because... And, and people have been doing stuff for the SETI program and that for 25 years. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. This, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, there is no question that, that people without scientific training can be taught to do really useful and, and helpful things. It's, you know, you don't have to be a scientist. And I think it's, it's fair for most scientists to admit that probably about 60 or 70% of the stuff they actually do, yep. almost anyone could do with almost any level of training. Monkey yep. work. It's the other It's the other 30% that is tough and that, you know, and you can't get by without that, but there's yep. a big portion that we could get others to assist with. Exactly. Mm. So hence, hence this new entity that was launched last week that I want to tell you about, which is called Mark to Cure. And what it is is scientists getting non-scientists to help with dealing with this massive um, amount of literature that they just can't keep on top of. So it's been called triaging the literature. And the idea is that anyone who can read can help with this process of biomedical research. So their their lay tag is, um, or their, their tag is, if you can read, you can help, which I really like. <laughs> so what they're doing is getting people out there to um, look at abstracts mm -hmm. and basically code for certain things. So it turns out that people without any scientific training are quite good at recognising a word that is a gene or a protein or a disease or a drug. And if they can do that and tag them appropriately, Appropriately, then all of a sudden we can build these networks of knowledge around how drugs are affecting genes. You know, this gene is being overexpressed in this disease, whatever it is. And so they've done this trial with a particular rare genetic disorder called NGLY1. And it turns out the people who are affected by this rare genetic disorder are incredibly happy to contribute to helping trying to find mm -hmm. a cure. Yep. Love to get involved. And so they've just had 100 abstracts being read by 212 volunteers. And they came out with over 10,000 what they called annotations um, in four weeks. And they've done the research to look into how, you know, how well this is done. And it turns out that, yes, one lay person is nowhere near as good as a professional scientist at doing this work. But if you have 10 of them or 15 of them, they're actually better. They, it only takes 10. It only takes 10 to 15 <laughs> lay cool. people to do just as good a job. And if you've got people out there who are extremely keen to, to devote their time because it affects yeah, them personally. Personally invested, yeah. Why, you know, why mm. wouldn't you do it? So Mark DeCure is um, looking like it could be a really big game changer in terms of us being able to deal with huge amounts of knowledge that we just, you know, these hidden gems that could be out there that we don't know about. So, I think so, it's awesome. I mean, I have to ask, with, with what you described, why are people doing this? Why isn't this? 
is just a pattern matching computer program that looks for these these crossovers and maps them. You know what I think? I think one of the problems is that language analyzing software is really bad at learning like what you know the the horse before the cart Mm. type situations like this causes this this is larger than that it's very difficult i think for language um Mm. software to sort of sort through and you know get those connections in the right way so i was going to say and it's because of how scientists write scientists you know i try and train scientists to write in clear language (laughs) because most don't and often these abstracts are written in such convoluted dense ways I, i suppose i'm thinking though in more in the frame of IBM Watson, mm. you know, almost cognitive level computing where, you know, we are going a step beyond the, the traditional word search and keywords mm. and that sort of stuff. This That is very different. I mean, you know, that is working I mean, very effectively. I think one way you could get around it would be mm. to um, stipulate that every paper that comes out from now on has a really simple couple of tick boxes where you identify the gene, mm. you identify the, the protein, you identify the direction of the effect, you identify the disease, whatever it is. You know, maybe with time we could see that sort of simplicity being coded into our publication system. But, you know, that's not going to help with the, I don't yeah. know, 10 billion papers or whatever. I'm making up a number off the top of my head. I have to say the other there. thing that um, worries me a little bit is that, you know, looking at just the abstract, you know, that can, you know, that that's only if that's those are the highlight sort of findings of a paper. But how much gets shunted into supplementary figures and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean. You other think, data that's other data available that, that others might see something that exactly, you didn't. Exactly, you know. Yeah the third or fourth experiment that wasn't, you know, headline um, news but was worth putting in the yep. paper that's, no, that's you know, tested one drug or whatever. But it won't be in the abstract because, you know, it was a, you know, an incidental finding. And I imagine some of the really important connections are, you know, going to be those incidental findings that aren't the mm. the main thing. But, I mean, obviously chipping away at mm. um at the abstracts is a good way to start. I mean, I guess yeah. they're arguing that something is better than nothing. Yeah, and, sure. and it may be that if you can identify a paper that's worked on something, you know, it may be that a researcher will go back and then find the whole paper and read the whole thing because they've been, you know, it's been drawn to their attention. Yeah. But I just think it's a fantastic way of getting people involved with something that they clearly want to help with mm. and could otherwise feel quite you know, um, hmm. helpless. It's it's really empowering to say, actually, you reading this and encoding this in simple terms for us hmm. could, could. I think help. it also it also brings into play a whole other area for me, and that is um, how papers are cited and hmm. by whom. So you know, there are there are literally millions and millions of papers out there that are poorly cited, hmm. poorly read. Most papers never get cited. And and you know, you have to ask the question: if 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 you and your own student or two of your students are the only persons to people to ever cite that paper, hmm. was it a complete waste of time because by that measure yes Mm. but there may well be good material in there that's not being picked up or for whatever reason people aren't reading you know that journal or you know making that crossover and this might might sort of deal with that well the example that that mark to cure these group talk about is the fact that you know with fleming's discovery of penicillin that sat in the literature completely unnoticed for i think 20 years before Mm. anyone picked up on it and did anything about it yeah great example that's 20 years of people dying yeah, mm. yeah, on some pretty big stuff, mm. which you might have thought, you know, maybe someone would have noticed. Mm. So, well, it's, um, well, we can always do better, can't we? <laughs> it's a good thing about science. It's able to evolve and learn. You know, that's the thing I like about it. Just like Ireland. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, we may keep coming back to that, folks. Sorry, it's a pretty good piece of news. Three, triple R. We uh, hopefully now are going to be able to go to the phone and talk to Wes Stein, who's the CSRO Solar Research Leader. Let me just see if we have Wes on the line. Wes, can you hear us? I can, Shane. Thanks very much. 
Thank, thanks for, for taking the call. Now, you're in charge of the solar research program up there, um, and of particular interest, we wanted to talk to you about the Cypress Hill project. Um, I think we might start with why is CSIRO involved with Cyprus in this regard? How did that start? Um, uh, as a research institute, uh, we uh, enjoy the collaboration of, of many other organisations around the world and uh, one of the ways we think we can accelerate this technology most quickly is to work work with others, use their bits of skills in, in this bit, mm-hmm. um, ours in, in another area, put them together and uh, see if we can get this product out there. There's also the, the, the situation that different countries in the world have different climates and um, uh, different energy needs. Yep. And uh, being able to meet all those diversified requirements is uh, is useful for the market. Yep. Now we're we're talking about solar here, so give us give us a bit of a rundown on what the installation will be for Cyprus. It's a mini version of what we have up here at Newcastle. Um, we use uh, many heliostats, they're uh, individual mirrors that track the sun, mm-hmm. concentrate the sun onto a single point on top of a tower. Now, by doing that, um, we're, we're concentrating the sun hundreds of times, even a thousand times in some cases, and therefore we can get a really hot fluid up there. Once you've got a hot fluid, there's many things you can do with that. You can make electricity, you can make uh, fuels, you can make desalinated water, for example. Hmm. Now, now, when you talk about hot, what, what are we talking... I mean, presumably here you're talking about running a turbine with the with the heated fluid. What sort of temperatures do you have to get the... Um the material up to for that to work? Typical steam turbines um, uh, that are running off coal-fired power today are are running at about 550 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And we can do that fairly easily. Uh, What we're trying to do to get the cost of this technology down is to go to even higher temperatures and pressures so that the efficiency becomes greater. And the the, the more efficiently you can convert that photon that lands on us into an electron for electricity, the less mirrors you need, the less capital cost you need. Um, So by going to higher temperatures and pressures, we can get higher efficiency, and um, we're talking about 800 degrees or so. Right. And give us an idea of, I mean, I think some some of our listeners have probably seen pictures of these sort of mirror arrays heading up towards, you know, a single location. But give us an idea of sort of how big these things need to be in order to generate, are we talking in the megawatt range here? Uh, Absolutely. I think this is the distinction with, say, photovoltaics on your roof, Mm. that um, uh, there's a nice um, uh, camaraderie there, I think, where you can have the distributed solar cells on your roof and... uh, um, and then these larger centralised power stations with storage yep. uh, feeding electricity in through the grid. Um, so it, uh, the, the projects overseas in Spain and the US in particular um, uh, are generating of the order of 50 to 100 megawatts in each power station. That's typical of a, um, a small coal-fired power station. And uh, they'd be of the order of uh, a square of maybe one kilometre by one kilometre. Um, and and it, that, that area would be filled with the, the mirrors Yep. And the tower in the middle. Ruth, I was just wondering, if in terms of getting this uh, greater efficiency, I, is it an engineering problem in getting the mirrors in the right position, or is it a materials problem in getting better mirrors to actually, you know, funnel that energy in? Which, which thing are you really tackling? Mm, well, uh, one of the great things about this one of the things that attracts me is that it involves a whole lot of different things coming together. A lot of dis- disciplines uh, from from physics, from en- from engineering, um, and and also from economics. Um, in the case of the mirrors, uh, 
they're essentially at this stage um, glass, you, a, a very high-tech version of your, of your mirror in your bathroom um, on a frame that accurately tracks the sun. Now, that in, in principle is not too difficult to do, but you've got to do it very cost-effectively. And so we're working with the automotive industry to try and uh, get their skills in mass production to try and uh, tackle that engineering problem. Uh, when Once you get to the concentrated uh, energy up on top of the tower at about 800 degrees or so, we're talking then about uh, very high-tech heat transfer and needing uh, materials, exotic materials to try and handle those temperatures. Um, uh, around 800 degrees C is getting close to the melting point of some, some metals, for example. So we need to have very accurate uh, control of the mirrors to make sure those metals don't go over temperature. Uh, once we've got that, that fluid, then uh, it goes through a turbine, and that turbine is, is pretty much something we can buy off the shelf these days. Uh, so it's a, it's a combination of engineering and science to tackle this um, this uh, this question. Now, Wes, you, you mentioned storage before, because this is one of the big issues with solar, of course. And I know uh, I got about four. I feel small, but I got about four kilowatts going at home in my solar scenario. But of course, uh, when the sun goes down, it's it's all over. Um, how do you go about storage? Is it just the fluid maintaining its temperature after after the, the daylight is gone? The, the, the preferred way of doing it in the, the commercial systems that are operating now is with molten salt. Um, right. It's pretty much a... Uh, there's a little bit of your table salt in there, but there's a few other salts in there as well. It gives you a melting point of about 150 degrees Celsius or so. Once you've melted that salt, it's, uh, it looks a lot like water. Right. Uh, so what we'd do is we'd have two tanks, a cold tank and a hot tank. And on, on, on a sunny day, the cold, uh, the, 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 the liquid salt from the cold tank at about uh, 250 degrees C would be pumped through the solar receiver, pumped up to about um, uh, 550 degrees Celsius, and then into the, into the hot tank. Um, with that, that hot fluid, and they're talking about maybe 30,000 tonnes or so of, of salt in that mm-hmm. tank, um, you could generate um, 50 megawatts of, of electricity for 8 to 10 hours during the night just simply by extracting the the heat from that salt, uh, producing steam and running a steam turbine. So regardless of whether it's cloudy or uh, or nighttime, you can be using that heat and drawing <coughs> drawing down on it to produce steam at any time. Um, there there are some some projects in the world that are, are running for twenty four hours a day. Uh, that's simply an economic question. Do you want to build enough uh, storage to run at two a m in the morning when the prices are generally low, or do you just want to try and hit those evening peaks when everyone turns their air conditioners on at about uh, six to to nine nine pm in the evening? And Wes, how fast is this technology advancing? Obviously, what you've just installed at Cyprus, it must be you know enormously exciting to set up this whole new field. But you know, how quickly would you expect uh, the technology to have moved on? And you might have wished that you would have done it slightly differently. Uh, I think that there's um, a, a real opportunity for, for this to be be, be making um, uh, of the order of five to ten percent of Australia's electricity within the next next uh, fifteen to twenty years. Now that's that's a significant chunk. Uh, wind and PVs are not at that level at, at the moment, um, but we'd need to uh, start to. The, the, the big thing is this valley of death um, to move out of the research area into a commercial plant generally requires a lot of dollars and also a lot of risk at the same time and uh, that's the difficulty
for, for a country like Australia sometimes to move through that and um, out to the other side. But if we can make those inroads within the next three to five years, we could be having a significant amount of solar energy producing Australia's electricity within uh, within 15, to 15 years or so. It's pretty exciting. And was I mean, it must be, maybe it's not surprising at all to you guys, but it is a bit surprising to me that our one of our first big installations is in Cyprus. I mean, I know they, they have, you know, sunny in Cyprus, I guess you could say. It's a say. good it's spot. sunny. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there must be a lot of competing technologies around. What's what sort of given us the edge there with your product? We won an international tender to provide the heliostats for that, that project. Uh, but it, it is, at the end of the day, only a, a research um, facility for them. It, it's, it's a bit mm. like the one that we have here. Uh, in effect, for for us working in solar thermal, it's a bit like our lab in the field. Um, we're able to, to work with real mirrors, real sun, real temperatures, um, and, and see what happens in practice. And it means then that when industry comes along and says, well, look, does this really work? We can point to it and say, look, there it is, but it's a bit small at the moment. Uh, but because it's so modular, um, you know, we've got, uh, say, say 450 heliostats in, in Newcastle. There's um, only 50 heliostats at the Cypress project. Mm. But um, you can see how that could expand up to a thousand or, or ten thousand of these and that's when the mass production starts to bring the cost down very rapidly um, it, uh, Cyprus is the southernmost uh, country within the EU within the EU but they're an island nation um, much smaller island than us and they have a lot lots of hills facing the Mediterranean so what they want to do is to and then they have a big water problem there so they want to be able to build these heliostats on the sides of the hills um, produce electricity and desalinated water at the same time and that's a that's a slightly different situation to what we've got in Australia we've got lots of flat land in the center yeah we want to try and get those electrons back to the cities as efficiently as possible the other one I'd point out though is that we can also make um, solar diesel from, uh, from from a combination of natural gas and the sun and that's diesel that will just go into our cars um, today and we would use it and not not know the difference mm. uh, and that, that's uh, from that same solar field you can use it to make both electricity and um, and liquid transport fuels at the same time and that that to me is where the future should probably head mm. Well, look, Wes, it's, a, it's an amazing project. Uh, congratulations on getting the uh, the tender over there in Cyprus. I think it's um, fantastic to see Australian technologies being deployed in this way. I hope we see a lot more of these across Australia. I mean, for one thing, they look absolutely bloody awesome, and maybe that's just my physics background <laughs> saying that, but um, I think these things look really amazing when they're set up. So um, good luck with it in the future, and hopefully we'll see it spreading across the land. Thanks very much, Shane. Thanks, thanks all. Thanks for talking to us. It was Wes Stein, who's the CSIRO Solar Research Leader um, up there in Newcastle and just put an amazing solar installation in Cyprus. And um, it's great to see our technology going all over the it's world. fantastic. Yeah, really good stuff. Three, triple. Hearing all the uh, stories of, from Dr. Diani about her trials and tribulations over the last six months <laughs> with her daughter. All very interesting stuff. Um, we are going to speak now directly with Dr. Sorry, Professor Catherine North from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Catherine, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Now, uh, you're the director down there, and over the last week there's been some very exciting news because the Melbourne uh, Genomics Alliance has been offered up $25 million of state government money to continue activities. That's pretty good news for you guys. 
Oh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's a real game changer in terms of uh, taking the latest technologies into to diagnosis and clinical practice. Now, the, the Alliance has been running for just over a year now. Tell us a bit about that trial period, because I know there was a, a very limited amount of funding for you guys to do essentially some sort of proof of concept work. What, what did that involve? Well, um, the Alliance started off as a, a partnership that was self-funded um, across uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital, Royal Children's Hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, uh, the University of Melbourne, AGRF and CSIRO. Mm-hmm. And we all put 250000 on the table each to give us funding to do a pilot project. And the big goal of what we wanted to do was to take genomic technology, uh, which we can go into in a little bit more detail, but actually take it into clinical practice. Um, These new technologies are often developed in a research setting, but actually putting all the building blocks in place so it's actually part of our hospital system uh, requires a different approach. Hmm. So talk us through what you mean by genomic technology, because most of our listeners would have heard the term, but in the clinical setting, what, what exactly are we referring to? Well, I I think most people will have heard of the Human Genome Project, which basically took 13 years and $3 billion to to be able to sequence one human genome. And the genome is, it's your recipe book. Your genes are recipes for proteins in the body. And we're all containing every cell of our body, uh, an entire, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica worth of of information. There's over 3 billion letters that um, makes up our alphabet and makes up our recipe book. Now, up over the last 13 years or 14 years since the Human Genome Project was completed, technology has really improved so that instead of us having to, to sequence genes one by one when we're thinking about a particular diagnosis or looking for a mistake in the gene that can cause disease, we now have the ability, I mean, a PhD student in my laboratory can sequence an entire human genome overnight. Um, and the cost of the chemicals has, you know, come down. It was $3 billion, remember, for the Human Genome Project. It's now down for the chemicals to about $1,000. Wow. Um, plus, but, you know, that is not including the large amount of analysis and expertise that needs to go into interpreting that huge amount of information. I mean, the genome is equivalent to 1,000 copies of War and Peace. Right. And so it's really looking for a single spelling mistake in that huge amount of information. So, so when... I mean- you're sitting down there on the children's campus, the Melbourne yeah. Children's Campus, next to the hospital, or I guess you, you're in the hospital in a sense. Yeah, we're, we're fully integrated. One, one building. Um, what, I mean, what does that mean in terms of the patients there? I mean, were they involved in any way in this trial period? Oh, absolutely. So what we were really looking at doing was actually starting with the patient. This whole project, this pilot project started with us working with the children and the families um, that were being seen across um, a number of different hospitals. But starting with the clinic and what we did was the patients, say say they present with, um, you know, my particular area is the area of muscle weakness. Now, usually what you would do is you bring a kid into hospital that have an anaesthetic, probably have a muscle biopsy that have a series of tests. You'd be looking at the genes one by one. It can sometimes take take years to actually get to a diagnosis with that approach. And it's also very uh, very expensive, but also very invasive for the kids. Mm. Because, 
um, they, you know, they often need a general anaesthetic to have many of these tests done. But at the same time, what we did is we took the approach of what if our first line of investigation was to take blood from the patient to isolate their DNA and to sequence all of their genes. It's called whole exome sequencing. Um, and what, comparing what rate of answers would that give us? How can we compare what the costs were? How can we build up the expertise of all of the people dealing with this new technology? And so there were many steps along the way. It involved biometricians, bioinformaticians, clinicians, genetic counsellors, um, the laboratory uh, scientists across many labs, making sure what we we're able to do was also at a, a clinical grade. It needs to be reliable. It needs to be repeated. It needs to be a very high quality. And at the same time, working with a health economist to look at what are the what are the benefits and what is the what is the clinical utility, but what is, is the the cost to the health system going to be? And that pilot program has been incredibly successful. I was going to say, I mean, those numbers must be stacking up because now you have this new investment of you know a, a serious amount of money, twenty five million. Yes, of, very um, serious. Yeah, serious cash <laughs> to, to go forward for the next four years. So what's going to happen now as a result of that money? Well, um, first of all, just to, to give you what the outcomes of our pilot project in specific disease areas, and we were looking across in rare inherited diseases that could cause significant disability, as well as looking across cancers, for example, and cancer diagnosis. But uh, to give you an example, in the childhood syndromes mm. area, um, taking the traditional approach to diagnosis, um, gave us about one in five or twenty percent diagnosis at a very significant cost, mm. um, compared to taking the the whole exome approach and just looking at the known genes. So we weren't we weren't analysing all of the genes. We're very much targeting the ones that were known to be associated with disease. But just in that pilot, we tripled the rate of diagnosis. So we got to about fifty four percent. I mean, one in five. I have to say, you know, for the four out of five, that must be an agonising period. Oh, it, for the families, for the kids, um, you know, they can go years without knowing mm. what is wrong. For the families, they really deserve their questions are, you know, what's wrong with my child? What's causing it? What can I expect for the future? What can you do about it? And what are the risks to my other children, yeah. my family members? Getting a diagnosis gives you that, all answers to all of those questions. And increasingly and excitingly, it's giving us the ability to be able to target therapies to the individual. Mm. And we've got a number of patients who really, it's changed their lives in terms of being able to direct, uh, treat or prevent um, disability. So not, not to feel selfish, but you know, it's great for the kids, but what, what about the rest of the community? Is, is that where we're going now over the next oh. four years to expand this? Absolutely. So what the investment by the state government is going to enable us to do is really expand expand what I've given you as an example of this pilot project. And we're now, I, I talked about the initial partners, but we're now partnering right across Victoria. So the mm -hmm. technology will be available across all of the state, which is uh, really, it's unique in the world. I really believe that Victoria is going to lead the world in this area of how we're integrating this type of diagnostic approach for the population. And I use children as an example just 
you know, obviously I'm, uh, I work in the paediatric yep. world, um, but this is really across adult medicine very much. Um, certainly we were focusing, like epile- focusing on epilepsies, focusing on inherited cancers like bowel cancer and breast cancer, focusing, focusing on leukemias. And really as we um, expand this now, this is going to have an impact across all ages. What I see is, is going to be happening over the next five to ten years is that there will be a transformation in healthcare. So instead of waiting for a disease to happen and then diagnose it, we're actually going to be able to, to take back and look at prevention, to look at early intervention, uh, and which I, I really think is a, a much better approach to healthcare. Mm, so taking those things before you're symptomatic, essentially. Absolutely. And preventing further damage um, is essential. And really taking this approach um, really in partnership with the clinicians. And that's the other thing I must emphasise is the interpretation of the genomic data, all of this information that we get about a person's genetic makeup. Uh, We've formed these multidisciplinary panels that have the scientists, the bioinformaticians and the clinicians working together with the results and continually going back to the patient to making sure that we interpret the test results within that clinical setting. Uh, and this is why we're, we're taking a whole-of-system approach, really, to how we integrate this into healthcare. I imagine uh, having genetic counsels involved would also be very important. I mean, there is the potential, isn't there, of uncovering mutations that might not, in fact, be the driver of a particular you know, condition in a, in a child. And if it's a very rare condition, you know, I guess picking out you know what mutation is the causative mutation of a condition you know might not always be uh, that easy how do you how do you <laughs> deal with some of those situations oh absolutely it's, it's not um it, it's not it's not straightforward but um I'll, there's a number of questions you raised there the first is that as as I said, we target um, in our interpretation, first of all, the known genes that are relevant to the clinical setting. So it's, it's very much targeted like any test in medicine uh, in the approach that we're taking is that, you know, if you've got headaches, you'll do a brain scan. If we've got a presentation with muscle weakness, we will basically look at the 700 known genes associated with muscle mm-hmm. weakness. So first of all, we're we're looking at what's known, but what we're also doing is engaging with the international community. That as more we, as we all gain more knowledge in this area, as we discover more genes, the success rate is going to increase because we'll have a greater body of of information about what is what is known. But the second context is you, you talk about incidental findings and the approach that we take here is that um, certainly you can elect to have a look at your risk of other disorders but very much the pilot project has been targeted on how to find a diagnosis for a particular clinical presentation Uh, and then thirdly a comment about genetic counsellors let me say they are the absolute, absolutely intrinsic to everything we're doing. And, and part of the government's investment is also about us training and upskilling uh, and also uh, increasing the workforce to be able to take this technology into clinical practice. Catherine, it's amazing stuff. Uh, congratulations again on, on getting that investment. I think it's um, fabulous that the state has come to the party on that, especially given all the money originally came from the partners. Uh, we'll be watching with interest over the next four years to see how this progresses. Um, good luck, and hopefully this will indeed transform healthcare in Victoria. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Shane.
Professor Catherine North is the director of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, professor at University of Melbourne, and uh, based down there on the Melbourne Children's Campus. A very exciting project. Three, triple, ah. We are joined in the studio now, though, by Dr. Daniel Gomez. He's a research scientist down at the manufacturing flagship of CSIRO. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, thank you, Shane. Now, um, you work around uh, all these products, basically, of organic chemistry, and there's a lot of them. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if everyone knows just how many there are. I mean, give us some examples of the sorts of things we do get from organic chemistry that we use day to day. All right, so uh, I'd like to clarify that I'm a physical chemist, yep. but in relation to your question, so we use like even the materials that we see here in the studio mm. are made out of plastics or fibers, like our clothing, it's also made out mostly out of artifi- um, artificial fibers, not just cotton. Yep. And those products really come from the organic chemistry industry. Hmm. And, and and so these are petroleum-based Exactly, so, correctly. Yeah, yes. yeah. So petrol doesn't just go in cars. <laughs> Correct. <yeah. laughs> no, we wear it too. We wear it. Oh, dear me. It's a bit disgusting. Thank you, dinosaurs and all the leaves and trees that were there at the time. Um, it's it's one of those areas where now you you, you say you're, you're a physical chemist, so you're working on ways of I guess we we spoke to um, one of your colleagues from up north um, who works in a very different area of solar power, but you're also working on ways of harnessing some of this as a, a chemical reaction, I suppose, Correct. rather yeah, so, than heating, as he was talking about. Yeah, so he was talking mostly about um, harvesting solar power either for creating electricity mm. or. Uh, transforming, transforming it directly into heat yeah. for these yeah. uh, power plants. Yep. Uh, what I'm researching about is to actually how to use the, the sunlight and transform it into potential chemi- chemical energy, or in other words, to use the sunlight energy for driving chemical transformations. I'm just going to check something out here, but isn't that what plants do? <laughs> correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct. A gold star for Dr. Shane. Oh, you know, I did, did biology to year 11. I learned a few things. Um <laughs> People, I just lost the respect for a whole lot of people on the show. I never did biology at university, but I've picked up a few things after 21 years of broadcasting. Let me tell you, not mainly from YouTube. Um, now, so in terms of harness, I mean, this is the sort of thing that nature has gotten right. Although right. my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is the the efficiency in nature is not that great. Is that true? It's very little. Yeah, I think yeah. it from memory, it's about six percent. Yeah. So in terms of the sorts of materials you're looking at, talk us through what you're trying to do there in terms of these chemical reactions. Because, so, I mean, are you using the, the sun as a source of heat there or as a catalyzing agent? I mean, what what is the role of the sun? So there are many roles, and the ones that I'm doing right now are actually transforming uh, sunlight, the photons, into mm-hmm. electrons with a lot of energy that can be injected into molecules and therefore yeah, impart a lot of kinetic energy to the molecules that will then undergo chemical transformations. Mm. In order to achieve this, we are focusing on using nanoparticles, metal nanoparticles, as both the sunlight harvesters Mm -hmm. and also the transducers that will then take uh, the instant photons and transform that into high-energy electrons. Okay. So you, you presumably you have to disperse these particles into whatever chemical you're trying to transform. Is that how it works? That's Yeah, well, that's the most exciting part of my research is that we use the, uh, a facility in Clayton called the Melbourne Centre for Nanofabrication, mm-hmm. and we that allows us to place nanoparticles where we want and in making very um, precisely controlled shapes and we create surfaces which are often called metamaterials. Mm-hmm. And so it, they consist of particles that could be rod-like shape, and we create very diff, um, geometrical shapes that are designed for 
um, harvesting the most of the sunlight. Okay. And these, I mean, when you say position, I mean, are you making these in the old bucket chemistry sort of methodology? No, no. You, 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 it sounds like you're positioning these one at a time. So one these things at a time, are very, correctly. Yes, yeah. very precisely. And we use uh, um, tools called like electron lithography tools that allows us to plate the particles to within 10 nanometers to <laughs> so one each other. Do you go home and say... Yeah, big day at work today, I placed four atoms. <laughs> <laughs> no, we go much, much faster than that. Much faster than that. So that, that was my next question. At least 10 atoms, yeah. come on. <laughs> in terms of actual, you know, production of materials and so forth and actual scaling up, is this technology scalable or is it sort of bound to the lab, do you think? Uh, here in our labs, yes, it is bound to the lab, mm -hmm. but we have collaborators in Germany who can actually manufacture over very large scales with this uh, level of uh, accuracy. Mm. Now, in, in, and in terms of materials, what sort of materials are we talking about producing? I mean, I'm sure there's some simple ones, but um, give, us, give us some examples of so what you're the, actually making. The, the, in the lab, to test our ideas, the, uh, the, the, the best materials we use are gold and silver, mm -hmm. although these are obviously quite expensive. Yep. But the technology can also, and we have demonstrated this, can be also implemented with aluminium, which is a, one of the most abundant materials on Earth, and copper, for, for example. Okay, yeah. so they're, the, they're the, the materials in the mesh material to the framework you're building. Yes. But then what, what are the output, the chemical outputs that you so get then, as a result? Correct. So then we have to tailor the, these materials, in particular the geometry and, their comp and the arrangement, the spatial arrangement, such that they can catalyze specific reactions. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, I'm working with uh, some colleagues in CSIRO for making very simple organic reactions that are uh, going to allow us to build more complex molecules. And we're talking about creating carbon-to-carbon ca ca carbon carbon atoms, uh, links, uh, bonds, or carbon-to-chlorine uh, bonds, etc., which are all very important in the pharmaceuticals industry. Mm, mm. So essentially with the... Uh, with the uh, the framework, do you just need to wash over a fluid and then the reaction will take place based on the structure and that matching what's in the fluid. Is that essentially how it works? Yes, yes, correct. So we, we have like this surface and we, it's, um, it's a sort of a heterogeneous process whereby you have a solid surface and then you put it, put this in solution. You have to stir the solution so that the molecules do come in contact with the uh, surface. The surface is itself illuminated and then mm -hmm. This leads to the uh, chemical reactions. It's very cool stuff, Daniel. And I have to say, you know, metamaterials, I remember when I was working in, um, in physics and this stuff was just starting to come out. And it always sounded a bit like it came from a Marvel comic. Um, <laughs> yes. But it is super cool stuff. Yeah. And that, that real detailed control of, of light in, yes, in such a way is, is extraordinary and not in the standard sort of way that uh, light is controlled by normal optical components like lenses and so forth. It's, it's super cool. Uh, good luck with the work. Hope it... Um, yield some really interesting ways of producing materials. Dr. Daniel Gomez, research scientist from the manufacturing flagship of CSIRO, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Now, folks, we're pretty much out of time. We have to uh, head off and uh, do our things and hand over to eat it, sadly. Dr. Diani, great to have you back. Oh, it's been great. You come back next week? Maybe not next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go, Maybe folks. you could have seen the look on her face. <laughs> uh, we'll see you in 2016. Uh, hey, Dr. I'll be back before then. <laughs> that sounds good. Dr. Jenny, always good to see you. You too. See you soon. you got something lined up this week for breakfasters, I assume. Of course, always. <laughs> yeah. She saves her best stuff for breakfasters, I think, guys.
No, I don't. No, I do different not. stuff. <laughs> different stuff. We're going to hand <laughs> over to Edith. We will talk to you again next week. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fabulous Sunday, everybody. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.